Hello, hello, John Elder here, science editor with the New Daily. Welcome to What Does That Mean? Science, health, and the social fabric is our beat. This episode, we talk about the cancer-like growth of cyber squatting. We learn about a new lighting system being installed in a neonatal unit that keeps the doctors awake at night and the babies happily asleep. You'll hear about a new study linking obesity and how it works against the brain's ability to heal itself. But first, an amazing new development that promises some measure of independence to people who are profoundly paralyzed. Every week at uh, Podcast Central, I get these press releases, and sometimes they're interesting, and a lot of the time, well, you know, thank you for trying. Then I've got this one, a tiny device, it said, the size of a small paperclip, has been shown to help patients with upper limb paralysis to text, email, and even shop online in the first human trial. The device called a stentrode, has been implanted successfully in two patients who both suffer from severe paralysis due to amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, otherwise known as ALS, also known as motor neuron disease. Neither of these people had the ability to move their upper limbs. University of Melbourne Associate Professor Nicholas Opie is co-head of the Vascular Bionics Laboratory at the university. He's also the founding chief technology officer of a company called Synchron, and it was within this company that Nick began crafting this device, apparently entirely by hand. Nick, how did you do that? It's a great question, and thanks for having me on. I suppose back in uh, 2011, 2012, when when we founded the company on on the back of an idea to, to enable people with paralysis to regain independence and, and movement by uh, extracting their their thoughts with a technology that was safe and could be implanted without invasive surgery. Um, we had a look around at what technology currently existed uh, in terms of brain recording or brain machine interfaces. The technology that existed at the time required removal of some of the skull to access the brain to get to get the signals out. Uh, and that's you know, risky and invasive and certainly something we wanted to avoid. There was also a lot of work that's been done on stents for cardiac uh, applications to keep blood vessels open, for example. And so looking at these uh, technologies, it, it wasn't too big a leap of faith to, to have the idea that, well, we can use one of these stents to keep vessels open. But instead of putting it near the heart, we could direct it towards the brain Wow. Uh, and have electrodes near the brain in a way that we can access without without the invasive surgery. So how do they access the brain? The stent is implanted via a small hole in the neck into the jugular vein, and the sensors are mounted on the stent, which is deployed to keep the blood vessel open. The stent sort of looks like a thin tube made from small-scale chicken wire. It travels up the vein and accesses the motor cortex, where it picks up signals, including thoughts of desire for specific movements to occur. The device looks for changes, looks for patterns in brainwaves of when the the participant is 
is thinking about doing something, and this is the same thought process that happens with uh, with you or I or or anyone that you know has limbs. What we do then with the information that we can record from people when they're thinking about moving is wirelessly transmit this information out of the body and use it to control uh, assistive technologies such as computers. And in this way, we've um, come up with a way where we can overcome some of the diseases or limitations of people with paralysis, whether it be through, uh, as I say, disease or or injury or, or loss of limbs. So when it says you, you you crafted it by hand, what what does that mean? Yeah, as it sounds. So in the in the early days, when we started up the company and started up the laboratory, I was really getting getting some of these stents and mounting electrodes on them and, and making all the, the lead wires and the telemetry equipment and so forth uh, by hand. Uh, it was all done under under a microscope and it was all done yeah, generally late at night. Uh, but I had a lot of fun doing it and certainly from that learned a lot of uh, important information that allowed me to go to medical grade manufacturers and, and get them to, to work with us to develop the design suitable for, for clinical use. So I take it then your company and you, you d- developed this device. The clinical trial then was actually carried out by uh, the Royal Melbourne Hospital. That, that's right. The new interventions. Uh... Yep, that's correct. That's correct. So did you have any involvement in the trial? Were you, I mean, were you actually there when it was happening? Were you able to actually see what was going on with the, with the patients? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you know, we've been working with the Royal Melbourne Hospital uh, the University of Melbourne, obviously, and the, the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health for, uh, well, since since 2012, you know, working through how to make sure that the device uh, functions properly as well as, you know, and most importantly, how to make sure that it's safe and can be uh, used by clinicians or interventional neuroradiologists, as they're called, to, to employ the device to, to the yeah. brain. Uh, and so, so, yes, I was, I was in in theatre at the time uh, and it's really amazing to see um, Peter Mitchell who did the surgery and Andrew Morikoff uh, see them work it was uh, it was flawless and it was uh, you know, very exciting to see them in action Were the patients actually awake when this was going on? The, these participants were not um, normal procedures they do or other procedures they do um, we're using a stent to remove a blood clot that can often yeah. be done with a patient awake but but certainly for these uh, initial participants um, the decision was made not to not to have that all right so the, the patients they have the surgery they have the device implanted and then of course it's time to test it um, using uh, their eyes obviously to follow a cursor so they don't need a, a, a keyboard or a mouse so you you were there when that side of it was going on when these patients were actually um, using it to communicate yep I was there as well and uh, and certainly, uh, absolutely magical to watch uh, you know, the, these men using their minds to control a, a computer was just uh, really unbelievable. So you, you sort of had that moment. I guess there's been some famous moments over the time. The cochlear implant. Someone does it. They suddenly hear. I guess there must have been something there. Gosh, I can, I'm actually doing something. I'm making something happen. Well, it was more of a gosh. I can't believe he's doing something without <laughs> without touching anything. It was, uh, yeah, very special. Now, do these guys, do they get to keep the device in their head? Is, is that it for them? Are they able to, to live with this and go on? Or, or, or being a, a trial, has it been since removed? No, no, it's, it's, it's theirs. Uh, and certainly what our plan was from the start, which is 
very different to some of the other technologies I mentioned. Um, the device has always been intended for independent and at-home use. So we made it wireless and, and safe so that you know, the patients can use it at home to perform activities of daily living and whatever they might be, and I'll go into them in a minute, uh, in an you know, environment where researchers don't have to be present. Right. Uh, so this technology is, is theirs, uh, and they, you know, we will train them up and we'll teach them how to use the technology, how to use their, their brain in combination with the eye tracking to uh, you know, use word processing or to surf the internet or, or whatever it might be. And then you know, it's really up to them to, to f- figure out w- with us how, how to use it and if there's something they want to do. Uh, one of the gentlemen wanted to control a phone to text his wife. It was, you know, we, we come back in and we help them. So basically you're sort of finding, you know, the capabilities uh, um, and applications as this sort of goes along. But I, one thing the press release did say in the, is that you're cautioning that it will actually be some years before this technology, um, although it is cap- it's, it's demonstrating it is capable of returning some independence to people, uh, it's, it's going to take a while for it to become publicly available. Is that to do with money or is it just through a whole process of trials and stuff that you've got to go through? Yeah, that's just the reality of, of, of clinical trials, certainly with a, um, a class three medical device, which is uh, a permanent device that interacts with the brain. It's you know, given the highest risk profile. Uh, so to, to make sure that it, it's, it's safe, not just for these three participants, but, but all the future ones, we have to do many more tests and uh, each of these tests uh, you know, this, the safety profile has to be measured over over a number of years and, and that just takes time. Final question I have to ask you, Nick, is that on your bio at the company site, it's said that when you do have a bit of time, you spend it helping your daughters build robots. Is that true? <laughs> uh, yeah, that is true. I've got a, uh, a very, very curious three-year-old and one-year-old uh, and oh they, they love building robots and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, painting them and putting them together and and, and racing them. Uh, so yeah, I'd I'd love them to follow in my footsteps and start doing the same thing. But time will tell. They're, they're certainly having fun at the moment. Look, as as a fa- father of daughters, I think this is a good move because by the time they hit teens, they're friends. It it just becomes such an awful social <laughs> system. So if you can actually just help them build their own robotic friends, who are probably going to be kinder to them than other teenage girls. It's just a tip. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll take that on board. Uh, certainly at the moment, I'm just enjoying them uh, wanting to spend time with me, which I know is not going to last. No, no, it's a, it's a pretty cute age. Hey, Nick, thanks very much for coming on. It's, it's such a terrific development. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Cheers. A world first study has found that severely overweight people are less likely to be able to rewire their brains and find new neural pathways. This discovery has significant implications for people recovering from a stroke or brain injury. Co-author of that study is Dr. Brenton Hordaker, research fellow working with the Body in Mind Research Group at the University of South Australia. Hello, Brenton. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. I'm, I'm feeling brainy. 
<laughs> Look, uh, Brendan, could we start by talking about brain plasticity? Just to, just to explain a little about what is brain plasticity. Yeah, so brain plasticity describes um, the ability of the brain to change in structural function somehow. So there was this idea originally that you know once the brain forms, it's in a relatively stable state throughout our life. Um, but we know that people can learn new skills and people can learn new abilities throughout life. Like if you chose to pick up a, you know, speaking a new language or a new skill such as playing the piano or skate skateboarding or whatever you choose to do, that involves brain plasticity. So the brain changes in the way that it functions or it, even its structure can change a little bit. And when we talk about structure, it's the, the pathways or the, the connections that form as well. Um, so we know now that brain plasticity is um, its actually a capacity or an ability that uh, humans have throughout their life. Um, and it certainly does change in terms of, you know, how much brain plasticity or how much change is possible. And we know that kids, that younger adults, certainly have a lot more capacity for neuroplasticity. But as we age, that decreases. Um, but certain things happen in life, like you know, you mentioned stroke earlier. So after a stroke, for example, the capacity for neuroplasticity increases. It's a physiological response to help the person recover from the stroke. So okay, so so that's that's the thrill. I've actually read that when a brain repairs, it's, it was often thought to be oh well, that was a, a kind of a, a topical or a local response. The brain just simply repairing itself. But in fact, it was then found to be uh, a bit more complex and interesting than that, that the entire brain was working to, to forge new pathways as a response to injury. This actually involves, though, people who are obese yep. and how then brain plasticity uh, is impaired in obese people. How did you find that? How did you discover that? Uh, well, you know, our research group is interested in things that can help humans recover and learn new skills. So we're interested in those enablers of um, plasticity or even things that inhibit plasticity in humans. So we do test a lot of different things such as aging and uh, different you know, characteristics of humans. And one of them that came up in our, um, in our search of the literature was actually obesity might be a factor that influences um, the capacity for neuroplasticity. So you did a series of experiments. What, what did they involve? Yeah, so we tested um, two groups of people. So one that is healthy weight, and that's based on what's called the body mass index. So a body mass index of less than 25 um, is, is considered healthy. And then the second group was obese. So that's people that would have a BMI with body mass index more than 30. In these studies, we um, what we did is an experimental neuroplasticity paradigm. So we use repeated stimulation um, to the motor part of the brain and what that does is actually change the excitability of the motor part of the brain, the brain for a short period of time afterwards. So we were trying to um, actually decrease activity or synapses, uh, you know, how strong they connect to each other using repeated stimuli. Um, yeah. This is this was electrical stimulation? Uh, it's called electromagnetic. So it's you might have heard of something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So it's yeah, uh, much like you know, the physics behind the alternator in the car, which is an alternating magnetic field creates an electric field perpendicular to it. So the good thing about that is you don't get the tingling in the pins and needles um, as the electromagnetic pulse penetrates the scalp. At the surface of the skin, you just feel like a tap on the head, um, but inside the brain is activating electrically all the neurons underneath the coil. Um, and when you give that in repeated stimuli in a certain pattern at certain frequencies, that changes brain activity. 
um, and we can measure how strong that change is. So the underlying principle behind the study is to induce a change in brain activity and then measure how strong the change is. And what we found is that the, the obese group didn't have as strong a change as those that were healthy weight. So it basically wasn't responding to the stimulation and this then suggests that it won't respond as well to an injury such as a stroke yeah. uh, as opposed to the to healthy people. Now, this the obese group aged between 18 and 60. Yep. Now, 18... At the age of 18, you still have a fairly plastic brain. In fact, I think it's meant to peak at about the age of 25, as I understand it. Was there any difference between those younger people, those younger obese people, and the 60-year-olds in terms of response to the stimulation? We didn't actually look at the difference in age. Probably what's worth pointing out is the mean age was around, I think it's around 30 overall. So we didn't, uh, from memory, I don't think we actually had anyone that reached 60 at one extreme and people that were down at the other extreme, they were 18. This, yeah. um, the study itself was conducted at the university and recruited a lot of university students. So it was very um, similar age group of, uh, of students that came through, sort of between that early 20s to late 30s. It's interesting that that you have that average age of 30, relatively young. Mm. Does this suggest to you that if you had a cohort that was much older that was about 60 or 70 years of age when strokes are more frequently happening, that um, that that response would even be further reduced? Um, Look, I suspect so. And I think when we think about what's causing this response, it's probably a change in some sort of inflammatory markers in the brain. Yeah. And the question becomes, does that response become dramatised or enhanced if it's a, a, a really chronic period that the person's been obese for? And you're adding on top of that ageing in the brain. And we know that with general ageing as well, um, there is a decrease in the, the capacity for neuroplasticity. So, we, we, for example, like you pointed out, an 18-year-old's brain is probably a lot more plastic than a 60-year-old's. But if you add on top of that a chronic long-term obesity problem, then that might might even impact that further, of course. So this inflammation would seem to be one cause of, of uh, reducing plasticity. But what about just reduced blood flow? Would that be expected to be playing a part here? Yeah, it, it certainly could. Um, keeping in mind, I suppose, that they are this sort of younger age. And, and something we looked at in the study is physical activity as well. Um, yeah. What fascinated us actually was that the obese group was very similar in their physical activity compared to the uh, healthy weight group. Was, was blood pressure taken in the subject? No, it wasn't. It was um, this, this study itself actually was an honours project. So with an honours project, it's, um, it tends to be a bit more low scale in that respect. But it gives us yeah. really interesting questions, like things like you're getting out here, and also diabetes. I think would be worth investigating in the obese group, even though they're quite young and might be they might be pre-diabetic, um, and we might need to consider those when we follow this up. Look, great study and great talking to you. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. A new lighting system is being installed in the neonatal ward at the Women and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. It will introduce light sources which alter in colour spectrum and intensity over the course of the day, with two ends in mind. One is to allow the tiny patients 
to fall into their circadian rhythms, thereby supporting natural sleep patterns. The other sort of does the opposite. It boosts alertness in doctors and nurses, particularly on the night shift. This has been a collaborative project involving the CRC for Alertness, Safety and Productivity, a company called Versalux Lighting Systems and Monash University. Vince Macri is National Product Manager Healthcare at Versalux. Hello, Vince. Hello, John. How are you sleeping? <laughs> I, I sleep beautifully. I, I abide by everything that uh, you've already just said. I've been doing it for three years. Wow. And I do sleep well. I actually monitor my melatonin levels and my deep sleep as well. Really? Every night. I do. You, you know, you're probably <laughs> the only person I've ever met who's actually, who's actually going, yeah, I sleep well. It's fantastic. <laughs> Listen, uh, this sounds very interesting and, and it's, it's kind of cute, isn't it? I mean, for, in a way, you have this little system going in, letting the baby sleep and the doctor stay awake. It's, it's great. How does it work? How does yeah. this system work? It, it's, ironically, it's actually very, very simple once we've worked out the technology. Uh, essentially, we, we've created a chip that has the appropriate amount of, of blue light that will suppress melatonin during the day. And that enables you to reset your circadian rhythms. That blue light that we have is very similar in color to uh, what you see outside in the blue sky. That's the actual quality of blue. And what we were able to do is to develop an LED chip that delivers that blue, but uh, is still uh, able to function in a normal domestic or commercial environment. So it's not like daylight, it's actually uh, 4K, which is a lot more acceptable, um, but achieves all, all of that very similar to what you would expect outside in, in, in daylight. When you say 4K and it's much more acceptable, what does that mean? Sorry, uh, 4,000 4, Kelvin. Yep. So right now, if you looked outside your window during the day, you're getting 6,500 Kelvin, which is a very stark light. The problem with that is, at, at, you know, in, in a building, if you're walking in and out of different rooms with different light levels, that intensity and that colour temperature can be very harsh and stark on the eye. So, so it's basically a more palatable uh, intensity. Exactly, John. All right. And then the other side, of course, is, is where we've removed that blue. So at night or, or leading into evening and towards sleep, we've actually removed that, that sky blue light component. So we still achieve a, 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 an appropriate light level for, for safety and for comfort and for people to move around and for security and health purposes. Um, but it doesn't actually suppress melatonin. And if you compare that with what is currently used in hospitals and, and in bedrooms, the difference in terms of suppression is one hour. So what we are saying from the research that Monash has done is that you might actually find that you're suppressing melatonin by one hour once you hit the pillow to go to sleep if you use conventional lighting as opposed to melogen blue depleted. There's also, of course, it's been widely reported that people using smartphones and so on and so forth are keeping themselves awake. That, that's, I mean, I keep reading that that's a blue light problem. That's exactly the case. It is. It's that, and it's that blue which essentially tells our part of the brain that monitors our circadian rhythm that it's daylight. So you look at your phone before you go to bed or even worse, right? You have uh, a light that has a lot of blue and you go to the bathroom at two in the morning. You're telling your brain it is now daylight and it starts to suppress melatonin and stops it from being released. Melatonin is what enables you to have a deep sleep and reset your circadian rhythm, etc. cetera. Uh, so we confuse our bodies by doing that. So with the, uh, with the absence of blue, 
at night time. That's that's among the patients, though, isn't it? Because you've you've got this other um, goal of actually boosting alertness in the in the hospital staff. That's that's a good question. That's exactly right. So with the patients, we want blue depleted so that we don't hinder the release of melatonin. But with with the staff, especially shift workers, uh, it's imperative that we suppress melatonin throughout the entire shift. Um, if we didn't do that, then it's possible that let's say you have a shift worker that's worked multiple shifts, different shifts back to back, and they're getting in their car to drive home and their melatonin is being released because the week before or the night before they were actually asleep because they had a different shift. Uh, that increases their risk of accidents. And in fact, statistically, shift workers have higher instances of workplace accidents and motor vehicle accidents. And that's been linked to fatigue. And this assists with minimizing that risk. Tell me, how did you get involved with this? I mean, you've got this collaboration going. Who put their hand up first? Well, we, we've been involved with mili- military uh, work for quite a few years. We've done the original um, uh, seven frigates and then the, the re- and upgrading and re-technology of the frigates again. Uh, we've supplied the uh, LED lighting for those. And it was via the, our work with the Department of Defence that we came across Alertness CRC. So I guess basically, with the uh, in the defence setting, uh, especially ships at sea, twenty-four hour operations, you've, you've, you're very keen there to keep your uh, your sailors awake. Yes, exactly, and we are in fact working on on some research now to actually explore how that can happen um, and how it can happen in a way that enables them to recover quickly if you know obviously if you're in a submarine or there's an emergency arising you need to be able to go from asleep to fully active in a matter of seconds Um, but of course conversely you might you'll then need to go once that is over back to sleep again so you can try to have the appropriate sleep and rest that you need and we're we're running some experiments to to actually see how we can better facilitate that process Hmm. now listen with the hospital the the neonatal uh, ward at the hospital in adelaide Mm -hmm. Is this an experiment installation or have they just gone, oh, we like that, it works, we'll have one? Well, no, we were working with the engineers um, and also with the architects and they were very, very keen to have an installation. We we were actually trying to hold back uh, because of COVID-19, uh, it slowed up the release of a lot of our, uh, our products and the yeah. development and testing. And uh, But they were really keen and so we were air freighting things from... Uh, uh, from all around the world to uh, components, etc., to to be able to actually put it all together for them. But yes, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Um, the, the neonatal ward itself is not open yet, so we haven't had the chance to uh, actually get some feedback at this stage. But the light itself, uh, the blue depleted light, um, is very very warm. It's like uh, it's like candlelight, but a lot more richer in colour. So it's really it, it looks so romantic. But it, it has uh, it actually lowers your HRV and has a calming effect on the body. And, and this is where more of the science is going to come out. It's quite appropriate for babies, I would have thought. Well, of course, when you're out there camping and you've got the old campfire dying down, it puts you in a natural dozing mood. So I guess maybe there's something similar going on there. Um, mm. Look, Vince, I'd love for you to keep in touch with us and to do a follow-up on, on how it it, uh, it goes with the, uh, the neonatal unit. I think it'll be a pretty interesting thing to, to hear. Cool. That's great. I'd be happy to. Thank you, John. Thanks, mate.
Cyber squatting. Not an online Pilates class, but it's even more painful. Cyber squatting is where criminals mimic popular brands like Netflix, Facebook, Apple, and Samsung to create fraudulent domains to scam you out of your money. Palo Alto Networks has a threat intelligence arm, Unit 42. They've done some new research showing the extent of the problem in Australia. Sean Duca is Vice President and Regional Chief Security for Palo Alto Networks, and he's here to talk about the current state of cyber squatting and how Australians can protect themselves from online scams. Hello, Sean. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm all right. Actually, um, don't get me started. Now, look, <laughs> your research found that an average 450 new squatting domains registered every day. Now, this sounds like your job is a bit like Sisyphus, the ancient Greek character who pushed a rock <laughs> up a hill every day only to have it roll down again. Is that how you're feeling? Uh, I probably don't feel like that uh, five days a week, but uh, yeah, there are a few times that uh, we, we definitely do see a lot of challenges that, uh, that are presented in front of us. Uh, you know, the attackers are constantly looking to evolve, so, you know, we need to try and keep up with them. All right, so what does Unit 42 come up with that we can find helpful? Yeah, so from what they found, obviously a number of uh, domains are registered on a, a daily basis, uh, with probably about 35% of them actually showed that a lot of them seem to be malicious sites. So firstly, if you go back, cyber squatting is really around how do I make a, a known popular website look like it's a legitimate website where you just, you know, bat of an eyelid, you probably don't even think about it, but you sort of happen to accidentally click on it. You know, a good example would be, you know, think of Google. Um, sometimes you accidentally type in Goggle, you know, G-O-double-G-L-E. Um, you know, someone could actually set up that site as a cyber squatting site to look and feel like it actually is Google. Yeah. You've actually just typed a typo and, you know, lo and behold, it's probably going to be a site that may contain, you know, some sort of malicious, info, um, you know, software, like some sort of viruses and the like. It could also be a an email that comes from, you know, a particular known brand, but it just has something that kind of looks like a little bit off. You know, take the example of Netflix. It could be, you know, netflixemail.com that you're receiving an email. And a lot of these scams typically uh, focus around trying to provoke some sort of reaction from you, such yeah. as, hey, we've noticed some unusual activity in your account. Please click here to verify your account details. You know, without you even thinking, you might automatically click on that. And at that point, you're either going to be asked to provide some extra information, so they're trying to steal some information from you, or it could even be a case that your machine is going to be compromised and, and maybe a virus is going to be installed at that point too. What do we do to protect ourselves, Sean? Oh, look, I think first and foremost, anytime you receive an email um, or any, anything to that effect, just always think about what websites we're typing in. So if you are typing in an address manually, just double check it before you hit enter. Uh, I think users always need to be aware of any signs that cyber squatting uh, is potentially out there. And at the end of the day, we're going to think about how do we protect ourselves from any type of you know, financial loss. If something seems a little bit too good to be true, if someone's actually asked you to, you know, click on this link or open up this particular attachment, uh, or we've actually noticed that you need to provide this thing to, to verify stuff, just stop and think for a second and go, would my bank or my, you know, my Netflix or Apple or would some sort of provider actually ask me that type of question? And more often than not, they won't. 
because they know that this is the type of scams that do take place. So just stop and think before you actually click on that link again. I had a I had an email from a, an Alan Foster recently, and he said that he was uh, I was the the sole heir of some Colin Elder in England. There was seventeen million pounds, and he was happy to take forty percent, and for me to have sixty percent. And when I wrote back one word, wow, he, he wrote back a very <laughs> a very earnest thing. Oh yes, we're all very excited about it. Um, I'm just surprised the extent that people get drawn in. I mean, I, I see, I get a few of these every week. Look, yep. the top five most abused brands were PayPal, Apple, Royal Bank, Netflix, and LinkedIn. I can see PayPal being particularly a tricky one because um, people think, oh, okay, yes, I've heard from PayPal and that's that's incredibly secure. So if they mistype it, a false website pops up on their screen, um, and they've never had dealt with PayPal before, they're not really going to know um, whether they're, it's legit or not, are they? Well, correct. But then think about it. If you are a PayPal user and you receive an email from paypal-verify.com, you probably think, well, it is actually owned by PayPal, so let me click on that link. And maybe the actual email that you received was talking about you know, we've got some sort of brand new terms and conditions. You need to click on this link so you can accept the new terms and conditions. That could be a way that someone's going to try and steal your PayPal username and password. So for the millions of people that do use PayPal, they could fall victim. So the reason why you see a lot of these known brands like the PayPal, Apple, you know, Netflix and LinkedIn and the like, they have such a large user base that for them, it's the case of more than likely, someone's going to be a user that we're going to be sending this particular email to or whatever it may be. So let's create some of these bogus websites to really just try and trick and, and do people into clicking on those links or, or sort of going there and, and maybe even compromising the machine with a piece of uh, you know, malicious software. Look, one last thing. People just don't think. They don't double think. They're in a hurry. We And in fact, the way we interact online with our emails uh, and when we go searching... It's, it, we, we're sort of in the habit of doing everything quickly, and that's that's what we've been sort of seduced into with with our online life. Is it possible, or is it necessary, maybe that somehow there's a, there's a sort of a guardianship that's built into the internet that that spots these and and warns consumers? It's a big ask, but I mean, is that ultimately the way we have to go? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I think uh, what we've seen probably over the years, people like Google have really started to step up and do a lot of that, you know, searching and they automatically will call out that, hey, this is actually a bad website. So they've done a lot of their vetting, so to speak. Um, you know, if you think about the cybersecurity strategy that government announced a couple of weeks back, you know, they're talking about a concept called clean pipes, which is really about how do I provide clean, filtered internet free from any sort of malicious software uh, and preventing people from going to these types of, you know, bad websites that, you know, have actually been set up to, to provide, you know, malicious software. So I think we need to start thinking about how do we capture and protect the people that really can't protect themselves. So I think more and more, we need to probably start to head down that path. All right. Look, Sean, good talking to you. Cheers. Thanks, John. Get back out there and protect us, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. In my dreams, I'm always saying goodbye and riding away, whither and why I know not, nor do I care. And the parting is sweet, and the parting over 
is sweeter, and sweetest of all is the night and the rushing air. That's from a from a poem by one Stevie Smith called In My Dreams. And it's my way of saying, well, we're done for the day. And I look forward to blinding you with science next time. Au revoir.